on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil. I hope you are well. I'm feeling fucking great. (laughs) I know that we are not out of trouble when it comes to politics in the United States of America, but Christ, I feel hopeful in a way that I haven't in four years. And I uh, I cannot tell you the impact that has had on my mental health for the better. I feel as though I've finally been able to exhale. And I wonder if you feel the same way. And it's okay to bask in that for a second and just enjoy that and allow ourselves just a moment of peace and respite before we take on the challenge of making sure that justice actually comes from this decision that has been made just about by the American public. Um, yeah, I feel I feel good. I can't believe it. I've been so stressed all year and this has been, God, it was a magical weekend. I was in New York City and I was going on a walk And I suddenly started hearing pots and pans being hit to like a rhythm. And I looked up and, you know, they have all these apartment blocks in Manhattan. And there were people on their balconies playing their pots and pans and dancing. And then other people on different balconies across the street started also playing their pots and pans in rhythm to the other people's, (laughs) I don't know, dishware. And suddenly you had people singing in the street and dancing. And I thought, what the hell is going on? This is Saturday afternoon. I check my phone, find out that they've called the Biden win. And I cannot stress enough that I'm not saying that I align with Biden or Harris's pasts, but I do feel hopeful for their futures. Um, But it felt like this magical moment where... (laughs) People were smiling, which in New York is not terribly common. Uh, someone even told me to have a nice day when I bought a coffee, which was very shocking. And if you've ever been to a coffee shop in New York, you'll know what I mean. And I love New Yorkers, but it's definitely a kind of get your shit and go, keep moving kind of place. And to be here with everyone full of so much love and community and joy, I saw the best of New York. And it felt like we were going to break into a sort of like mass choreographed dance, like 500 days of summer in the street. And I think it might just be one of the most magical days of my life, seeing that, seeing the joy and the hope again in a country that has been so terrified for almost five years now. So I hope you had a good weekend last weekend. I did. And uh, I hope you're going to enjoy this episode because it means a lot to me. When I first started out in this industry, I you know, decided to take a leap into writing. 
and one of the first people who ever started to use their platform to circulate my writing, even though she'd never met me, and she had no reason to have to do this. And I was actually kind of, you know, an up and coming competitor of hers. We would be nominated for the same awards and she would always win. <laughs> I would always be runner up. But we have a very similar vibe when it comes to our message in the world. And she never, she never looked at me as a competition. She looked at me as someone to nurture and help and guide and promote. And she's just the most genuine and empowering and interesting and fabulously mad. Just, I mean, she's just like no one I've ever met or heard of. And her writing has meant so much to so many people. I'm talking about the absolutely excellent Catelyn Moran. And the chat that we had in this episode means the world to me. I have learned so much from this hour. And even since we first sat down to talk in the last week, have been going around and and imparting her wisdom onto other people and and seeing the impact that it's having on the way that they see the world. She's so thoughtful and she really goes there at all times in everything she does. She's always 100% authentic, warts and all. And she brought 100% of that game to this podcast episode. She talked to me so openly about being a woman, about being a feminist, but mostly being the mother of someone who is struggling with a mental health issue with an eating disorder. And we talk about how much she didn't expect that someone as body positive and open and, you know, just mentally sane and progressive as her could possibly have a kid who struggled with this thing that you always assume is the product of bad parenting. And we talk about that and we talk about the mistakes that she made, things that people don't admit to or they don't even understand about themselves, she talks about. Things that she got wrong when it came to helping her kid with an eating disorder, things that she finally got right, how long it took her to get there, all of the advice she can give to other parents out there in order to stop them from making her own mistakes, which is kind of what this whole podcast is about. I just found it fascinating. I've I've never heard a parent speak about what it's like to have a kid with an eating disorder and all of the things that they think and that they worry about. And I think for anyone out there who struggled with one, as in an eating disorder themselves, you might find this really healing. I did. I found it so healing to to hear this from a parent's point of view and to hear how useless they feel, how impotent they feel, how much they also just don't know what to do because there's not enough literature out there. She's written a book recently and she, I mean, she's written so many wonderful books throughout time. And I'm sure you already know them or you can look them up. But More Than a Woman is the book she put out this year with her daughter's consent. It was kind of her daughter's idea now that her daughter's in recovery from this eating disorder. She's written a kind of a manual of what not to do and what might help for all other struggling parents out there. And I wish that we had more role models who were willing to be accountable for their lack of perfection, because I think perfection is such a disease that is destroying mostly women because we're the ones who it's expected of. So anyway, I'm rambling, but I'm just in a good mood and I feel lots of love and a kind of burst of feminism every time I talk to Catelyn and I'm so excited for you to tell me what you think about this. Please message me. I love reading your messages. Message her. But your input and the things that you 
you say or instruct me to change or question or enlighten me on mean the world. Anyway, yay, there's hope in America, which means there's a bit more hope in the world because it isn't the world, but it does have an impact. And yay, I got to sit down and talk to one of my heroes and she was as fabulous as I could ever have hoped for her to be. This is the excellent Catelyn Moran. This woman has beaten me to numerous Column of the Year awards and she's been one of my role models for uh, well over a decade. She has been one of my first and like biggest champions and supporters. I love her so much. I look up to her so much. I'm so glad that she exists in this world. Oh, hello, Catelyn Moran. Hello, Jamila. How are you? That's one hell of an intro. I'm just blowing love hearts and kisses to you from across the Atlantic. Hello. There is so much that I want to talk to you about. I feel like we would need an entire series of our own just to cover everything that I could get from you about feminism, radical acceptance, self-discovery. You are the queen of all of those things. You were one of the first women in Britain to really just come out swinging and telling all of the truths and talking pubes and vaginas and periods and patriarchy in such an unapologetic and unashamed way that has inspired an entire generation of people to just start to stop hating ourselves so much because that's the whole ploy, isn't it? That's the whole ploy of patriarchy is to, to get us, to train us. The ultimate crime is to train us to harm ourselves. Exactly. So that they don't even have to do it anymore. Yeah, so that the, vo- so, so, that the, so that the calls are coming from inside the house. That's what the patriarchy does. The calls are coming from inside the house, like in horror movies. So, uh, yeah, you need, exactly. to, you need to get control of the voice inside your head. Realise there's a voice in your head. Uh, get control of the voice in your head and make sure the voice in your head is being at least as nice to you as you are to your friends and indeed dog. If you are talking to yourself yeah. worse than you are to your dog or your friends, you need to talk to yourself in a much better way. I I have exactly the same rhetoric. It's exactly what I believe. And it's the sort of, it's been the journey to my own self-discovery of wondering, would I tolerate that being said even to a stranger? I feel like I would stick up for a stranger uh, over the things that I gladly say to myself in my own head, or I did before I I stopped doing that terrible thing. Um, Anyway, so where, firstly, where did this come from? Where did this ability to just like word vomit all of your thoughts come from? Were you always like this as a kid? Uh, Yes, I always knew I wanted to be a writer and I was very lucky that the role models that I grew up with were amazing because I only watched classic 1950s musicals from the MGM stable and they would all be about weird girls who kept saying they weren't beautiful even though they were Judy Garland and instead of being (laughs) silent and gorgeous and passive as women are in non-musicals like you know if it's The Godfather you know all the classic you know, great films of all time ever that the women's roles they just have to be gorgeous and sultry and dangerous whereas in musicals very thin <laughs> very thin very silent they must wear beautiful white bias cut silk gowns and stand at the top of the stairs making a cigarette and looking kind of mardy and uh, but whereas in musicals they're jolly and they're funny and they're upbeat and they can do something they're amazing at dancing and singing and being funny um, so yeah so that was all I was watching and I was only reading books by women 
that wasn't a conscious decision. Uh, but because I didn't go to school, I was taught at home. I never had to read any of the classic, you know, great white male novelists. So uh, it was only when I got to the age of 30, 35 and started reading Philip Roth or um, Ernest Hemingway, that I suddenly realised what a bullet I dodged. Because again, the way they describe women... Um, like, mm. for instance, there's the amazing Raymond Chandler line where he goes, she was the kind of dame who could make an archbishop kick in a stained glass window. And that's a beautiful line. It's amazing. But if I'd read that when yeah. I was 14, I would have gone, oh, my God. So, first of all, I can't be a woman. I've got to be a dame. And I've got to anger the priesthood so much that they destroy property. Like, how would I do this? This sounds terrifying. <laughs> um, but I only ever read books by girls. I would just read Jane Eyre. I would read Anne of Green Gables. I would read Little Women. And they were all, again, usually about working class girls who were a bit weird, who just had to find jobs and work. Um, so I didn't realise that I was just unconsciously imbibing this entire pantheon of the kind of women that I would feel comfortable growing up into myself. And so your parents, what were they like? I mean, were they encouraging of this? Did they ever, were they like this? Where did this, was it any of this from them? So my parents are big hippies. They had eight children and I would describe their parenting style as not mammalian. So mammals have uh, children <laughs> one at a time and they care for them and they nurture them until they reach adulthood and then they're pushed out of the nest. Whereas my parents, bought, they kind of bred more like salmon. They sort of laid a huge <laughs> amount of eggs very magnificently and then just swam away down the river. So uh, I was the eldest and every two years there'd be a new kid. And uh, and then as soon as the new baby arrived, the toddler would then be my business and I would then sort of adopt the toddler and look after the toddler. So, um, so no, we were very, it was very feral. Um, they believed in the end of the world. It was quite apocalypsy. We had lots of plans for if a nuclear bomb was dropped. Um, and yeah, we were very much left to our own devices, which thankfully we were just a really funny, lovely bunch of kids who just read books and just made each other laugh incandescently and incessantly uh, right up until 20 minutes ago when I was talking to my sister and I actually did a bit of we talking to her as I always do. Oh, that's so great. I love hearing that. So it's kind of almost as though their hands-off approach just left you space to gorge on feminism. Yeah, very much so. My, and Well, the, they weren't feminists themselves. Uh, my dad, the first time I heard about feminism... What does feminism, that mean? As a, what does... They weren't just weren't. So we had, there were, the reason there were eight kids is because I was born first and I was a girl and they wanted a boy. So they had another child that was a girl and then they had a third child and that was also a girl. Then they finally had a boy <laughs> and then they were like, well, he can't be the only boy or he'll get bullied by the girls. So then they had another two boys before they finally pumped out another two boys. Uh, no, another two girls before they finally pumped out two boys. And the boys were treated Bloody as... Hell. I know, right? And the boys were treated as princes. And so the first time I felt a feminist feeling without knowing what it was, was noticing that all the jobs the girls did were like the long, repetitive, endless ones of child rearing and cooking and cleaning. Whereas the boys just emptied the bins, which is an incredibly easy job. And uh, it's not really a job at all. It takes 30 seconds. Um, so that was the first feminist feeling I had. I was like, boys are being treated differently to girls. That doesn't seem fair. And then mm. the only mention of feminism I ever heard in the house is if, if my mum ever complained about something um, or asked my dad to do something, he would go, all right, Jermaine Greer, put a sock in it. Um, so my presumption was that feminists like Jermaine Greer were just angry nags and uh, and that probably feminism was not something that my father would encourage in the house. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, that's so many of us. So many of us where feminism was a bad word. Like I remember refusing to, the irony of this, that up until I was like 24, I refused to call myself a feminist. I was like, oh, no, 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 I'm not. I'm not a feminist because I didn't understand what it was. I, what I thought that meant was, oh, no, I don't hate men. <laughs> and now I realise that actually, no, we can all be feminists regardless of our genders. Oh, absolutely. And we should. Well, there was a poll. It's just as, humanity. Well, there was a poll in the UK as recently as 2017 that said that 67% of people would only use the word feminist in a negative way 
just kind of like, that's a bit too <gasps> feminist or you sound like an angry feminist. And that's, you know, that's still, you know, there's been an amazing wave of feminism in the last 10 years. But still, I think, you know, if you are a feminist, you have to spend most of your time explaining what feminism is. And uh, and I, the reason that I wrote How to Be a Woman, because I, I was getting genuinely exhausted from the amount of young women that I would meet who would just go, oh, I'm not a feminist. And I go, OK, OK, let's let's take you on your word. I believe you. So I'm presuming that you didn't uh, get an education, uh, that you didn't uh, go to university, that you didn't get a job, uh, that when you were married, you went from being your father's property to you, uh, your husband's property. Uh, that there's no such thing as marital rape, that that would be perfectly legal, um, that your children could be taken away from you at any point, that you could be consigned to a psychiatric institute on the say-so of your husband, um, and that if you ever did earn any money, it would not go into your bank account, but your husband's and become his property. Now, if that is the case, and that is the life that you've led, then you are not a feminist. I totally agree with you. But if, on the other mm. hand, you've had the exactly opposite life and you did go to school and you do believe in all these rights and you can vote, then I have wonderful news for you. You are a feminist. And the reason that you've lived this life is because women who did call themselves feminists came before you and changed all these rules and changed society so that you could live the life that you wanted to lead. Um, and at that mm. point, they would nod and go, oh, yeah, I didn't know that's what feminism was. And I would go, congratulations, today's the day you realise that you're a feminist. And I got so tired of saying that in bars, usually quite drunkenly at three in the morning, that I was like, right, I'm going to have to write a book that explains feminism in a funny, accessible way that gives instances yeah. all the way through your life that when something happens, and this is the big breakthrough with feminism, I think, for so many women. So often we think that if something's happened, like we're sexually harassed or, you know, we're in an abusive relationship, it must be us. It's just us. There's something wrong with us. And that's why that particular circumstance happened. And feminism is realising women getting together, talking, finding out that we all have these experiences very often and that it's not just us making mistakes, that it is a societal problem and there is a cause that addresses this and it is called feminism. Absolutely. It's a whole system of oppression. Um, well, hopefully anyone who has any family members out there who do not describe themselves as feminists, perhaps you could just play them even that last five minute excerpt of Catelyn <laughs> explaining it to everyone. <laughs> One of the reasons that we are talking today is because you and your fabulous daughter made uh, an unbelievably generous um, decision to share the experience of her eating disorder with the world and what it's like to be the parent of someone with an eating disorder. And you wrote about that alongside many, many other things. And I would love to get into talking about that. Yes, no, well, I've got endless amounts to talk about here. Absolutely. And also you have just like, you have trans, uh, the internet has just been awash with people talking about the importance of your new book and how you go into this and how much it's illuminated them and reassured them. And I feel like so there are about 45 different angles when talking about not only eating disorders and unhealthy relationships with food and body, which I know that you can relate to, but also how to be the parent or the supporter or the lover, the love of someone who is struggling with this unbelievably complex condition. Yeah, I mean, it is a vicious condition. You get given a, a talk of doom um, at the beginning of a diagnosis, in this case, for, for our daughter. Um, and they tell you it's roughly 30-30-30. So 30% of uh, people with an eating disorder will recover entirely. 30% uh, mm -hmm. will recover partially and be functional, but still have major issues around food that will make their lives difficult. And 30% remain severely ill or die. The mortality rate mm. on this is the highest of any psychiatric illness. And the average span of, uh, of an eating disorder tends to be between five and seven years. So when you're told this about your 11-year-old daughter, it's suddenly 
there, there goes her entire teenage years. Like kind of it all just goes up in flame. What I had thought would be parties and boyfriends and fun um, is suddenly now hospital appointments and bandages and medication. Um, and as a parent, it's really hard to deal with because I come from a generation where mental illness was massively stigmatised and kept a secret. And mm. it was presumed also that mental illness would only come about because you had been badly parented. Uh, there was very little understanding of it. And so when my daughter said, which is, she, you know, she's my hero for doing this. When she said when she was fully recovered, I do want you to write about this. Because for my generation, there is not such a stigma around mental illness. We do see it as very much like breaking a leg or getting leukemia. We will yeah. talk about it on social media. But your generation that are looking after us, you have the problem. And you can't help us while you're dealing with all this guilt and shame and anger and fear. And she was like... And misinformation. Absolutely. I mean, it's so... And also the kind of information that you get. Like I looked around desperately to find any books or memoirs by people who'd had eating, eating disorders that had a happy ending. And I, I literally couldn't find one. And although we know, mm. you know, what the stats are on whether you will make a full recovery, when you're in the midst of that, you do want a story of hope. You know, you are so desperate to hear one story and see someone's path to recovery. Um, so that was another big reason why I wanted to write about it. And I'm very honest about the mistakes that I made because I generally do think I, you know, I'm a very good parent. We're very close. We're very honest. We're very open, very supportive, very body positive. Like, you know, I would just walk around naked, wobbling my tongue and going, mm, I love a cheese sandwich. Like it was not mm -hmm. a body, body hating house. No, I can't think of a, I can't think of a mother <laughs> who I would, who I would look to more as an example of someone who wouldn't raise their kids with body image issues. Oh, thank you. Honestly, like you've just always put out such a healthy rhetoric. And I think therefore that, that's almost more important for people to hear and understand that it's not all like obviously parents have such a profound impact on our body image sometimes, but sometimes you haven't actually done anything wrong. And sometimes it's just, it's just a, a surprise clusterfuck. Yes, I'm, yes, very much. A, yes, that, that is its official title, I think. Uh, it feels like it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was very aware that, I mean, this is also part of the problem. I was the good side of having the kind of image that I do and sort of, uh, you know, talking in the way that I do is that I knew if someone who generally seemed quite sorted and happy with themselves uh, it sort of came out and was honest about what had happened in their family, it would hopefully take a lot of the shame and guilt away. It's like, God, okay, if it can even happen in a family like that, then perhaps it isn't, you know, the, the evil parents doing this to their children and screwing them over. But the bad side of it was, of course, that like when I first started going to meetings with therapists or going to group therapy with other families, I felt incredible shame because I still had that idea in my head that it maybe was caused by the parents. And it was like, oh, here's this feminist who walks around, you know, wobbling her tummy on stage in front of all these people. And yet she still screwed up her kid. Um, so, you know, that was my problem to deal with. And my biggest problem was that I was scared of her sadness. I could deal with anything else, mm -hmm. but I was scared of sadness. I was brought up in a house where we just, you just weren't sad. No one cared. Just don't be sad. And so I tried so many things in the first couple of years of her eating disorder that were completely incorrect. And I put them all in the book. So I would try and rationalize her out of it. I would sit down and give these TED talks about the history of eating disorders and how the reason that she felt so bad and low at the moment was because she was suffering from malnutrition. And as soon as she ate, it would be easier to her to get a handle on it. That didn't work. I would try being angry with her, uh, you know, hoping that she would see that what an extreme thing it was and that she would bend to my anger. That did not work. We would try and jolly her out of it. We would turn into these light entertainment clowns. As soon as she came through the door, it'd be like, we're going to go and watch Glee in the front room and I've bought you some pet rats and we're going to play buckaroo and hurrah. 
and that didn't work. And what she needed, and it took me two horrible years to realise, is that all I could be was love. You just have to become stupid in a good way, just non-talky, non-kind of full of ideas, not full of anger. You just need to become this beautiful, dumb ball of love. You need to not not be talking, not coming up with the theories, not being angry, not being anything other than completely loving, sitting down, looking them in the eye and acknowledging what's mm. happening, going, you are sad. You are you are angry and sad. I am not scared of your anger and sadness. I am going to mm-hmm. be with you all the way through this and nothing you do will stop me from loving you. And astonishingly, I had not said those words in that sentence that blankly and, and plainly. And the minute I did, things changed. Like she stopped, she started being able to communicate with me and her body language changed. She would hug me again. We started being able to talk about it. Um, so that was one of the main reasons why I wanted to put this in a book. It was just like, here's some information that's going to be really important to people out there. Yeah, because also I imagine like when you can see that someone is railing so hard against your mental illness that you almost feel maybe like you're letting them down every day that you continue with it. So that might stop them from opening up to you because you can see how desperate you are. I mean, you talked about, yeah, I think you said, I will just parent her better. If she's worried about her body, I will show her a better, more stable way. I will take her swimming after school, her and me playing together, and she will work up a healthy childlike hunger that she can't deny. And then I will make her something delicious that fits in with her dietary preferences, but still give her all the nutrition she needs. And I will positively affirm her eating it and everything will be better. It's such a, oh God, it's such a relatable such a relatable paragraph. And and also, when I was reading all of this, I just couldn't help but think that Christ, even with everything I know about eating disorders and having had an eating disorder myself for so long, I would totally fucking make those mistakes. I would, that's, those are all of the things that I would have gone to. Well, especially as a parent as well, because every technique that you've used previously as a parent, like, you know, you would, uh, you know, you put in incentives, like if you do this, then we'll have a lovely treat. But someone who is so self-loathing will not accept a treat. They already feel guilty. You can't punish them, obviously, because they're already punishing themselves. So mm. it's making the switch in your head. You you stop being a parent and you have to become a mental health professional. Um, and there's an amazing book by an author called um, Eva Musby, who is the mother of a daughter with an eating disorder. I think it's just called Coping with Anorexia. And she puts scripts in there. Pages and pages of scripts of say this, if they say this, you say this, if they do this, you do this. And in the heat of the moment with someone who's very emotional and very upset, you can often accidentally say just one wrong word. And to have these scripts to follow was such a relief. They are just, those books are such a blessing. Wow. I didn't even know about them and I will definitely, definitely go and put them on our iWay Instagram. I think that's so unbelievably helpful. And just to have parents on side because there's just no fucking information. School doesn't tell you shit all. Your friends don't know anything because they're all young as well. And our parents are so under... They don't have the vocabulary. They don't have the range to understand these things or how much worse things are for our generation. Like you and I grew up in a time where we had to go out and spend money to buy the magazines that would make us feel like shit. Or we didn't have TV. You, you and I grew up very, very poor. Maybe we didn't have, you know, necessarily cable or all these different things. And so because of that, we can't relate to what they've grown up with and what they've seen. And so this is so wonderful to know about all these resources and thank you for furthering that conversation.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week, you know, as you're bottling things up, because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel, you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to. And this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week. You just have this complete freedom. Honestly, I think everyone should have therapy, regardless of whether they think they need it, because it's so amazing to have a confidant. It's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. For your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. So can I ask, do you know where her eating disorder came from then? If it wasn't from inherited from, you know, your own body image issues, do you, did you ever get to the bottom of that? Well, a lot of it is genetic. So about a third, a third of the, so there's usually a sequence of events that'll trigger an eating disorder from what I understand. So a third of it will be genetic. There will be a genetic predisposition to mental illness in your family, particularly anxiety and depression and control issues. So my family has that in spades. Um, and then mm-hmm. a third of it is societal, sort of what you're surrounded by. And then a third of it, there's often a trigger starting at school or being bullied or having a bad boyfriend or putting on weight and feeling unhappy about it and not realizing that it's so natural when you're young especially through your adolescence you go you grow outwards for a bit you'll put on weight and then you'll go up and then you go out and you go up but if you're in the middle Mm -hmm. of a growing out phase and you've got that puppy fat you think this is me forever and you panic and suddenly you go into this huge controlling exercise that becomes very rapidly an illness so it was a it was a combination of those those uh those things for her she was as is often the case and i'm sure you know this uh, it's often girls who are very bright, uh, have very overactive mm-hmm. imaginations. They can't control them. Very self-critical, very high achieving. Um, because you need to be bright and imaginative to invent this voice in your head that is so awful to you. It's like a dark, creative act. This 
voice in your head is more powerful than you or the people who love you. And it is controlling you and telling you what to do. And uh, my yeah. doctor had a brilliant dietitian in the end who said, you know, you wouldn't let a bad boyfriend treat you like this, but that's like the voice that you've got in your head. You're letting this bad mm-hmm. boy in your head say these things. And that was a huge moment for her, realising that she needed to get control of the voice in her head. She needed to control her imagination and make it more positive. It's also, exactly, and it's also such a secretive illness. You know, you become such a master of hiding things. The ability that I would have with my little kind of like, you know, there's 99p Sainsbury's sort of uh, microwave meals and I would get like the spag bowl and just sort of like scoop a little bit of the bolognese off the top and there'd be four pieces because it's a cheap meal and then I would just go and like hide the pasta in bags under my bed and just I was so good at you know like filling out wearing multi-layers so that no one could tell that I was losing the weight and no one could see my bed sores I I was so sneaky so duplicitous and I think again that's something and all of my friends who had the worst eating disorders all are bright and, you know, like good schemers. Yes. And so I, th- I think that that is also an important thing to talk about is the fact that there is a certain skill set that comes with achieving an eating disorder over a prolonged period of time where it takes a minute for people to work out. How soon into her eating disorder would you say that you caught on? Um, she'd probably been, because it's such a common thing these days to suddenly go, oh, I'm going to be vegetarian. And then to be like, oh, I'm going to be vegan. And then to go, oh, I really generally like healthy stuff, like raw stuff. Um, so for the beginning of it, I was really keen not to medicalize it. I was like, oh, you know, that's fair enough. She, you know, she's changing what she wants to eat. And I was so, this was part of my problem. I was too scared to go, there is a problem here. Because in a weird mm. way, I thought that the, that might give her the idea that maybe she hadn't, maybe she didn't have a problem. And if I said to her, I think you might have a problem with food, she'd suddenly go, oh, I do have a problem with food. So I was too scared to say it. It was my fear that was a problem. My husband was from the off just going, this is wrong. There's something weird going on here. Because she had this, there was this sense of her spinning faster and faster and getting sort of hotter and hotter and emitting more light in a really worrying way. She was becoming, What do you mean? She just seemed to suddenly get more, because she was on a mission and a quest and she had a secret. So she suddenly was super organised and super together and, you know, just running out the house with all these plans and stuff. And it was a really hectic, sort of overly bright, overly active phase that she was going through. My husband was like, that's not normal or natural. I've seen people with manic depression and it really reminds me of girls that I knew when I was younger. It feels like a manic phase. This isn't just someone who's got their shit together. This is this is turning into something like more sinister. Obsessive. Yeah. yeah. And secretive. And as you say, you do need to be really clever, you know, hiding things up sleeves, you know, sort of going off to the toilet and stuff. And as a parent, again, you don't want to be suspicious. You don't want to be the one going, I'm going to check your sleeves. Like I'm going to stand outside the toilet when you go to the toilet. Um, So again, Mm. it it was a fear of saying it at the beginning, which now, I mean, now when I've got friends and they're telling me about their children who would explain the early symptoms, I'm like, say it, say out loud to them as early as possible. Just put it on the table and start a discussion about it because your kids know when you're trying to avoid a subject. Your kids know when you're scared. Also, I mean, they pick up on everything, even if they don't even understand it. They just sort of ingest it via osmosis. But I always say that we need to stop like thinking that ignorance and innocence are mutually exclusive. Totally. It's exactly. such a ridiculous thing. It's just such a, a an archaic notion that children cannot maintain their innocence if they're told the truth. If anything, I've always said this, I would have 
maintained my innocence so much longer had I just known what was happening and what to avoid. But because I just went into everything completely blindfolded, I I ended up losing my innocence much faster because I found myself consistently vulnerable to life. And so I feel as though people underestimate the the instinct and the smarts of children that if you just like arm them with some information, they will move forward knowingly, just in the same way we tell them to look left and right before they cross the road. We don't want to make them afraid of being hit by a car and not give them the instructions as to how to avoid that happening. Absolutely this. And if you can't talk to your parents because you sense that they're sad or angry or scared about something, well, where are you going to go for that information? You're going to go online. And we, you know, we all know that there is terrible information out there. Though, you know, there are there are groups of people who out there who will encourage you and give you instructions and new terrible ideas. Um, so I don't really know what you mean, Callan. I don't really involve myself in the eating disorder community. I've, I've never heard of this before. <laughs> well, it was one of the hot, most horrible moments of my life when I was finding that I'm going to look at her internet history um, and just saw Oof. that all these awful people were in her bedroom talking to her, but yet she wasn't coming and talking to me. That was the point where it was like, okay, I need to stop being scared of this. I need to be able to talk to her because I'd far rather she spoke to me than these people. Yeah. Like, this is weird. Also, I I think I've read about you saying that, you know, she sort of, she looked healthy. So therefore you thought, well, maybe it's not an eating disorder because that is a, that is one of the most important messages around this is that an eating disorder can happen at any size and therefore we can miss them. Um, sometimes we miss them for a while until, you know, the weight loss becomes very extreme or sometimes they can happen in a bigger person who never becomes that kind of like single archetype of skeletal that we kind of see sometimes where you can see like every single part of someone's ribs and vertebrae. Uh, sometimes they don't get to that weight where everyone is is immediately concerned. And because of that, because of our lack of understanding, we had Steffi Boa on this podcast recently talking about the fact that she was a young, fat girl who had an eating disorder, who was starving herself, eating like 500 calories a day, over-exercising. But the, most people, A, wouldn't even look for those clues or anyone who caught on to what she was doing would just congratulate her for her, you know, quote-unquote discipline. Yes, totally. So that's another problem is that we don't realise that you can have an odd relationship with food and your body at any size. Well, it's one of the least discussed eating disorders, but it's one of the growth areas in eating disorders. Ednos, eating disorder, otherwise not specified. So you're not sort of, you know, the, the cliched image that we have of someone who has an eating disorder and you're not bulimic either, but you have such profound problems with food that you are constantly starving or malnourished or unhappy. Um, and you're mm-hmm. just in, you're just in a destructive conversation uh, in your head that you know it, it is only going to get darker and darker until you get help to deal with it. So, yeah, eating disorder otherwise not specified is something we need to be talking about because once yeah. you know that that exists, suddenly a load of stuff will fall into place, and you're like, well, my child looks healthy, but they clearly have a profoundly disturbed co- relationship with food and themselves. Uh, and you're expecting to see the cliched image of a child, and you go, oh right, okay, there's this whole other thing I didn't even know about, I'd never even heard of. Also, we're only just learning about orthorexia, which is a kind of like fear of food and like an odd relationship with food that I think we all need to investigate further. So how long did this whole process take? Let's say someone has, I mean, Jesus Christ, the messages I get all the time on my DMs are like terrified dads telling me that my my five-year-old, my six-year-old is concerned about her weight. My seven-year-old wants to go on a diet. I mean, this stuff is happening so young. But let's say a parent has a, you know, and I'm, I know I'm not trying to, I'm sorry if I'm trying to make you the authority on all eating disorder parenting, but it just feels like right now you're the only one we've got. So, uh, a parent comes to you with a 10 year old or 11 year old who's just sort of starting to hit puberty, just starting to pay attention to pop culture and, beca- and developing these 
unhealthy patterns with food and body, what kind of timeline are they looking at? And, and me, this is all the time me saying that each case is obviously individual and some things will be easier than Well, this is others. another problem because as a parent, you know, you've, you, know you've, you know that eating disorders can be, you know, a big problem in adolescence, but they start so much earlier these days that, you know, when you get, as you say, six-year-olds, eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds, you're just like, oh, well, that it can't be that because that only happens when you're like 13 or 14, like kind of that happens when you've got your exams. So it's being aware that it can start really early and it's, it's, it's saying to your kid in a language, you don't want to give your kid too much information you don't want to like spill your heart out about all your fears about what might be happening but you just need to say you seem to be a bit worried about food let's let's talk about that like kind of you know what food are there any foods you feel weird about like kind of you know um and and just start a conversation like that just naming what you see is such an important thing when you have a child with any kind of problem just going i can see you are worried i can see you are unhappy i can see this is making you angry like tell me about that and sometimes you might have a child that doesn't want to talk directly about it that can seem too intense so you can start a conversation talking about their friends instead just go kind of you know are any of your friends worried about food like kind of you know sort of you know have you got any friends who seem to sort of um be having problems at the moment and often that's a really good way to slip sideways into your child talking about their problems by discussing um, friends that have got problems too. So those would be the first two steps, I think. Just put it on the table. Name Super it helpful. So then you have your, what you've now learned via kind of trial and error is that you then have to try to become that mental health expert and not necessarily bombard them with your expertise, but bombard them with love, understanding and just an ear. Because I feel as though that is the most valuable thing you can be is the person that they confide in. And losing that means that you end up in a much, like you're in the dark once they're no longer confiding in you. So I guess being that non-judgmental ear and learning how to navigate their mental health with this expertise without making them feel like you're constantly diagnosing and analysing them. Yeah. So you need, even though you are thinking like a mental health professional, you are just presenting as a totally loving person. And I've had to talk quite a few friends through this because I talk to friends you've got who've still got kids with eating disorders and they'll, and they'll go, we just keep arguing about it. You know, she won't listen to any of my advice. And I'm like, well, are you angry with her for having this eating disorder? And she'd be like, yes, I'm furious. I can't believe she's doing this to herself. I've raised her so well. Like, why would, does she not love me enough to talk to me about this and trust me enough? And I was like, because she knows you're angry, dude. You know, you've said it to me when you talk about it, you sound angry, you will need to go and get a load of therapy and go and talk to someone until you truly have no anger and sadness left in you. Because if you even if you have a scintilla of it left in you, your kid will pick up on it. And we say things yeah. like it's a very common thing for parents to go, I just want you to be happy. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you look like or what you do at school or what you do for a job in the future. I just want you to be happy. And we think mm-hmm. that's a good thing to say to our kids that we're showing, you know, that, that their happiness is the only thing that matters to us. But of course, a child hears that and just goes, well, that's another thing on my to-do list then. I must present as happy to my parents or they will be sad and they will then cover up their unhappiness. Yeah, exactly. And also I think, you know, it's important for parents to understand that it is, while it's not helpful, it's very normal to feel when your child is unhappy you then will be maybe triggered into thinking, well, I failed. Mm. And then you can project your anger with yourself onto them, you know, or you might feel embarrassed by the fact that they're not, they're not coping. And therefore, what will everyone else think of you as a parent? And what do they think of you as a parent? And I can't believe, you know, because we all go through this thing of like analysing what our parents do wrong mm-hmm. and being like, I'll never do that when I'm a parent. <laughs> you know, we're always like, I, I feel as though I was like constantly taking notes. So were all of my friends of just like, I'll be cooler than that. I'll handle that better. And so, you know, I think that when we find out that we actually didn't smash it 100% in spite of all of our criticising over the course of our own childhoods, did, was any of that 
going on with you? Well, it triggers an emotional reaction because, as, as you might know from, from your journey through it, like kind of someone with an eating disorder, you know, especially if it's someone who's very clever, they can out-talk you, they can out-emotion you, they are trying, you know, you're the good voice trying to help them and they need to drown that voice out because they only want to hear the bad voice in their head. So they are going to do everything they can to fuck you up and stop you from helping them. That is what the bad voice in their head is doing. And so mm. they're very good at triggering you and making you feel angry or sad. They want to be in an argument. You know, the bad voice in their head wants to be in an argument. The bad voice in their head wants there to be a confrontation because then that avoids the issue. That means that you're not talking about what really is, needs to be done. You're just in a huge argument which your child can leave the room and slam the door and go, you don't listen to me or you hate me. And you, it's really another key image that I was given was your child is out at sea. Your child is out in a big sea of emotion and you are on dry land. Do not wade into the water and into the seas of emotion and both be splashing around in it. You have to stay on the dry land calm and loving and rational and get them to come to you and again I have seen so many parents who when they're dealing with this or with any problem with their child any mental illness problem they jump into the sea with their kid and they're both freaking out together and just yeah. have that image in your head of just stay on the dry land keep telling them this is where you need to get to like kind of I'm here you need to move towards me if you take one step towards them in that sea that's what the bad voice in their head wants them to do. It wants to be able to go, look, you're as screwed up about this as I am. You're angry, you're as angry as I am. You're as sad about this as I am. We're both weak people. We're never going to overcome this bad voice. Stay on the land. Fascinating. Oh my God, that's such important advice. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation before I any of my friends' children grows up. I feel so armed with like a bit more advice, a bit more of an idea, because especially, I mean, this generation, the next generation, what they're growing up with is like, they're comparing themselves to like artificially, just sort of AI cyborgs <laughs> that they think are real humans. Um, and by that, I mean, Photoshop, I'm not just shading uh, individuals on the internet. Um, no, or robots. I mean, there's probably some no, lovely robots indeed. out there. I'm no. very open to there being some really lovely robots that may one day be my Oh, friend. shut up. You just know that they're coming back to kill us and you're trying to like quickly suck up to them. I want a job. I want to be like the ambassador to the land of robots so that they are nice to me. So just let me let me lay my groundwork. I will speak up on behalf of all humans, I promise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. The robot that is Zoom. <laughs> Here's you. Um, okay, so... First of all, what I think you touched on earlier, which I think is a vital piece of advice for anyone struggling with a child with any mental health issues, is you mentioned the fact that the parent needs therapy. So not only you, you put your child through CBT, I believe, right? That's yes. cognitive behavioural therapy. What happens in the UK often with the NHS, which is criminally underfunded when it comes to mental health they need to it yeah. should be 50% for mental health 50% for physical health and it isn't and that's the best help you can't go private there's no way out of this if you're rich you the best help is on the NHS you have to wait and they often tell you that you'll wait six months a year a year and a half before you'll get cognitive behavioral therapy which is the best therapy for them and in the meantime they might give you psychotherapy which for a young child if it doesn't come from a troubled family can actually be a step backwards because you're suddenly getting a child to go well what do you think is bad about your parents and what do you think is bad about your childhood and that's not what someone who is starting to slip into profound anxiety and depression necessarily needs to be thinking about um, at that time. Mm. You also have this uh, mental health analogy. You said the mental health unit is like a tiny rescue boat in a sea filled with drowning children. It's the ones who are repeatedly slipping under the waves, the ones who are minutes from death, whom they must attend first. And in this world, your daughter, you know, who you know is turning up to every appointment so politely and never arguing back, who's still able to walk, etc., is a low priority. And I think that that's also something important for people to be aware of is that the children who weigh like three or four stone or who need to be on like a feeding tube 
and cannot function are the ones who will get help first, of course. And of course, within that, I mean, I'm, I'm always very aware of not saying stuff that could be triggering or badly informative. But if, if you are a child that knows you are low down on a waiting list and there are things that would prioritise you and you go to the internet and they're going, well, these are the things that might happen that would put you up the waiting list. You know, a very determined child will then go and make themselves even more ill and do things that will put you higher up the priority, which is such a torturous position for young children to be put in. They're so desperate for the help that they have to make themselves even more ill to get the help. That's like a terrible paradox that you see a lot of children um, stuck in, um, which is why there just simply needs to be more funding. And the problem is that when you're looking after a child who is ill, you don't have time to do that campaigning. And another reason why I wanted to write about it is now she is thankfully completely recovered and astonishing. I want to devote my time now to making sure that people who are going through that system now don't come up against the same torture of having to wait for help and watching your child slowly getting worse and worse and often helping that situation to be worse because they know in a weirdly almost determined and brave way that if they do these awful things then they might get the help they're so desperate for sooner yeah so what are you what are your next moves now within that system well, it's been interesting. So we serialised the bit about um, my daughter's illness in the Times and the response I got was astonishing. Um, so mm. many people that I know, so many people that I know of, um, lots of uh, people who are well known contacted me and going, yeah, our child is ill. We've been too ashamed and guilty to talk about this. So I'm in discussion with people who have ears of you know, influence and, uh, and platforms to see what we can do going forward. But I mean, it's a very simple thing. There just needs to be more money. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things, it's, you know, it's crazy how simple it would be. There just need to be more facilities then the waiting lists need to be shorter a hundred percent and i also think because there's so much ignorance around what anorexia or different eating disorders are they don't seem to understand the seriousness of it you know i think and i look i could be wrong i could be completely projecting are you ready for me to project project away okay um i sometimes worry that i mean a the uk the us the west the world does not take mental health seriously enough and doesn't understand that it has a knock-on effect on our physical health uh our economy our environment the gdp like everything would be improved if we would just fund people's mental health care but i think specifically with anorexia even though we have statistics that anorexia, I believe, is the eating disorders are the leading cause of death, as you said, with any mental health problem. A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people imagine that depression or suicidal ideation are, but it's specifically this illness re results in the most death from any mental health problem. And I wonder if, A, people not really understanding that or knowing that fact contributes to the unbelievable negligence around eating disorders. B, we live in a very fat phobic society that would rather see a very thin girl, like look at the way that we pile on to and blame fat people and yet will be, you know, concerned or slightly envious of very, very thin people. And then C, I think we think of an insecure, vain teenage girl when we think of anorexia. And I wonder if all of these old, straight, white men <laughs> who run all of these systems and control all of them and allocate the funding are looking at it as just like a bunch of silly little girls. And a phase they'll who need to eat of. more. Exactly. Yeah, who need it, to eat more, but not too much more because we don't want them to be fat. You know, yes. that's, I think, their mental mentality. I think the fact that we don't have enough women at the top and enough people who may have experienced this at the top who can allocate the funding means that they don't take this seriously. They don't understand that this is, I mean, it is truly, it took me 20 years to get it out of my head, Catelyn. 20, 20 years of my life, all day, every day, even though I wasn't starving myself, my brain was punishing me for not starving myself. So I missed everything, you know, that uh, 
I'd, I'd, I, I can look at any single photograph or day of filming or any party I ever went to throughout the last 20 years of my life, look at it and go, I know exactly how much I weighed that day. I know God. exactly how I felt getting ready, how much I didn't want to leave the house. There's like a, a like a lovely Vogue photo shoot and I'm just like, I remember thinking I was three pounds overweight and I remember crying in the changing room because I didn't think I looked thin enough and I had to be wrestled on, on set by my publicist. I know this is a very unaccessible way of talking about it, but I'm just saying that I had all these incredible life moments, all of which I missed, just despising myself. And I look back and I'm just like, oh, you were just a kid and that was really fun. That <laughs> should have been so fun. Well, it's also just an eating disorder permeates everything because you need to be eating at least three times a day. So it's not just something where you might go, you know, I say just go through like, you know, a month of depression and then you might get a month of respite. Three times a day, at least you are confronting your biggest fear and going through something that is increasingly traumatic to you. It's so constant and then it affects your sleep. You know, it permeates everything and you fall behind in your, you know, in your schoolwork. And the thing is, the irony is that very often the girls that suffer from eating disorders are the bright, empowered high achieving ones you know those are our future leaders you know those girls if they were not suffering from eating disorders would just be on a fast track to ruling the world in 20 years but they just have their legs taken out from underneath them during the big years where they would be building their careers and getting ahead in school Um, because they have all the characteristics that would be that of a future leader or business owner but just in these vital teenage years it's just taken from underneath them on may 10th kingdom of the planet of the apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a this summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because I made the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. What changed it for you? Like, what was your big breakthrough then when you sort of, when you, with your eating disorder, what changed it for you? My big breakthrough. So my first breakthrough was when I had the car accident that hurt my back so badly that I, A, I gained like 80 pounds. So that's about five and a half or six stone. And so, you know, I no longer had my little anorexic, frail body to be able to hang on to. So it just felt so far away. (laughs) I I just like didn't even know how to go about doing this after so many years of having starved myself to that point. I was like, fuck me. That's going to be a lot of work. I'm bigger than I was before. Uh, But mostly it was the fact that I was able to piss on my own again after two years of having to be taken to the toilet by my brother. And I was able to use my arms and my legs. And I had this newfound respect for my body and this gratitude for my body. And I know that it can sometimes be alienating for someone to hear like, you should be more grateful. Uh, I'm just saying for me personally, having overcome just truly all of my freedom being taken away from me so quickly to be able to regain some of that body autonomy meant that I looked at my body very differently and I started to see it more as a machine rather than a tool for attraction. 
I think this is a really key thing. I hear this again and again and again in the stories of women that they grow up hating their bodies or feeling alienated from them. And then when something traumatic happens, in your case, an accident, or for a lot of women giving birth, suddenly having been attacked by an outside force, this body that they themselves have hated and attacked, suddenly they're like, oh, hang on, that wasn't fair. Like, actually, I am on my body's side. Like, kind of, I feel so sorry for my body. I feel so respectful of my body through getting through this. That It's you your s- best friend. It does exists. so much for us all the time. It does so much for us all the time. And then we just shit on it. Uh, yes. I, I really, like, became so aware of that at 19. I was like, oh, my God, it was taking me everywhere. It was allowing me to do my exams or go out and see friends or go to the cinema. Like I was, I was able to do so much and I just starved it and hated it and cried. And I would like hit my body or I would like sit there like holding my uh, little, like tiny little rolls of fat, just being like, oh God, I wish I could just, you know, scissor this off. I would, I was so unbelievably cruel Mm. to this like best, like the best mate I'm ever going to have. Totally. And it's like if you were going out with a really brilliant boyfriend and then someone else or girlfriend and someone takes them away and suddenly you're like, oh, now I realise in this moment of loss what I had. Like, mm-hmm. kind of, what have yeah. I done? Why did I treat them so badly? Like, I'm going to get them back. And falling in love, like, kind of, I had this brilliant phrase in my head about sort of 15 years ago when I was dealing with some body stuff of just going, I want to have an affair with my own body. Like, kind of like, like if mm. I met my body, just I want to treat it like some kind of hot Thing. I'm going to treat it like Mark Ruffalo, like it's coming to my life and I'm going to love it and make it realise <laughs> how much I adore it and it's going to adore me and we are going to get on. And I think that's, Amazing. You, know, you have little sentences in your head every so often that change your way of thinking and thinking, I'm going to have an affair with my own body. I'm going to treat it. We're going to have a lovely night in. I'm going to like get it some nice clothes and just stroke it and have a hot bath. Can be yeah. quite a breakthrough if you are in an intense phase of self-loathing. That's amazing. Well, for me, so my second thing that I did... Uh, was sort of like 10 years after that first move, I realised that I was no longer a functioning, I was, I was no longer technically anorexic in that I was sort of eating, sometimes not. You know, I had orthorexia and I was going on like every single fad diet, but I thought as long as there was any food going into my mouth, as long as I was chewing, I wasn't anorexic anymore. Mm-hmm. So I was moving to America. I was 28 years old. I was just, I'd had a nervous breakdown already. I was in recovery from it and just kind of on this sort of fuck shit detox of getting rid of all of the fuck shit from my life. <laughs> and I came to terms with the fact that one of the biggest, one of the leading issues of mine that was making me feel like shit was still my body image issues and my issues with food. You know, I grew up with food being very weaponized. So food was rebellion, food was love. You know, my dad didn't know how to show me love. So therefore he would just give me food and give me pizza. And so it was just food was anything other than just fuel. And so having thought about that, I I realized that, you know what, I'm just going to go. I was doing this therapy, EMDR therapy. I talk about it every fucking week. Um, But EMDR therapy, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy is kind of like almost, it's fairly similar to CBT, but I'd say maybe slightly more extreme and specific um, and quite intense to do. But for me, it was unbelievably helpful. And I was able to detach my thoughts and feelings around food, which was unbelievable. So now food is just fuel to me. But I'd say the combination of the the, the big incident with my body at 19 and EMDR therapy over the last 20 years has like gotten me out of it. And now I am, I'm amazed to say that I am free of an eating disorder. 
I'm so, so happy to hear that. Like those are beautiful Thank words. You. They really are. But it's so hard in this society to have a healthy relationship with food. Like as the Western world is in such a destructive relationship with food. Because on the one hand, there is an obesity crisis and people are eating more and more junk food and they're just malnourished, even though they're eating so much because there's no nutrition in it. And then on the other hand, you have girls who are starving themselves. And then on the other hand, you've got people in our own country who are starving to death. Like there are, there are, there is actual famine. There are food stamps. There is a, a crisis. We've seen like these uh, aerial footage of these thousand car lines for food stamps and people who get there and all the food's gone. We have homeless people all over the street. And so we we haven't even evolved as a society to understand the gratitude Literally around this. food. And so as a parent, when you're aware of, you know, all those issues we've just done there, they those all go in very extreme different directions in terms of how you would talk to your child about food. And, uh, uh, you know, mm. and one of the big things for me was uh, realising that so often, particularly for our generation, food is about, you know, treats. Is it good or is it bad? Like kind of, you know, do you deserve this or, you know, or do you need to stop eating these things? A yes, guilty and pleasure. You need to stop eating this yeah. still in order to be healthy. And kids just need to be sat down at a really early age and have food explained to them. It's like in a day, here's the stuff you need to eat to be healthy. You need to eat a rainbow. You need to eat, you know, a red pepper and some green leafy veg and, you know, something of every colour, you know, preferably veg and fruit. And then after that, if there's still any room left in your body, you know, go with God, eat what you want. So long as you've had what your body needs, if you're still hungry after that, you can have pretty much whatever you want. Make sure you've got some protein. But like we never talk about it in terms of this is what your body needs and this is what's going to make your body feel good. And then after that, you can have whatever you fancy. Just spend mm. the rest of the day eating crackers and cheese. It's fine. But give your body what it needs first in the same way that you would feed your dog. Um, but again, there's no conversation about this in school. People are just looking for stuff online. The wellness craze, just as someone who is the parent of someone who's had an eating disorder, horrifies me when you see some of the advice that's being given to live on juices, to live only on raw food. Um, and how, how, you know, where, when yeah. people start, you know, when, when you get to your adolescent years and you start choosing what you're going to eat, the things that you're being told are normal and good and healthy and, uh, you know, aspirational to eat. It's such toxic information. Um, so this is why we need to talk to our children really early on and make sure you get in there first. You are going to be giving, you know, as long as you are educated yourself, you are always going to be giving better advice than some blogger who's standing there just drinking 12 juices a day and putting a jade egg up their fanny. Who's getting, by the way, like paid to put all this bullshit out? And I think that's really important that even if they're not sponsoring an advert, they're getting paid in some way or via the adverts that run on their own YouTube channel. There's so much nonsense out there, all of which I've seen and I've tried it all and now I'm really <laughs> ill. <laughs> so don't be like me. Um, but you're also right in the fact that eating disorders, once they get a hold of someone, they are very, very difficult. Clearly not impossible, but unbelievably difficult to divorce yourself from. So anyone out there, nip it in the bud as early as you can. If you yourself are starting to register that I'm developing some odd feelings to do with food or my body, or I'm spending a lot of time focusing on my image, start seeking help now because you will find it so much easier to prevent this then you will to cure it once you're in the full. Yeah, and don't have that thing of like, oh, well, I could just try it for a couple of months and see how it'll work out. Like I know, and I've heard lots of girls nope. talking in those terms. It's like, no, it always ends up badly. It will control you so much quicker than you think. In the same way that you don't try heroin for a couple of weeks to see how it works out, don't try an eating disorder for a couple of weeks to see how it works out. Like that's powerful stuff you're messing with. Mm. It is an addiction. Yeah, it is an addiction. It's like the thinness is an addiction. <sighs> 
and it's being reinforced by it's like it's like everyone is a user especially when you live in like a big cosmopolitan city or you exist in this fucking industry everyone's a user it's all around you so it's like being in a crack house and trying to give up and what i didn't understand when my daughter first got ill is that they describe an eating disorder as being like an iceberg so what you see above the water is the eating disorder what's below it is probably years of anxiety and depression and worries about control over your life and that it finally and at the time Mm. you think the eating disorder is the solution to the anxiety and the depression and the worry but you know at some point you're gonna have to first of all deal with the eating disorder which will be so hard and then you're gonna have to finally drill down into what's beneath so if that's what's beneath before it crests above the water deal with the anxiety and depression first you know kind of you know do the work early take care of yourself so has all of this led you to reckon with your own kind of history of body image or had you already reckoned with that because I know you've kind of had a history with it you've kind of been up and down in size and then you know once you'd lost a lot of weight I you know I think you said you had like a a, a bit of excess skin and it's kind of been the journey maybe of I believe motherhood that maybe has changed the way that you look at your body can you talk me through yeah, a little so bit we of that were journey comfort eaters in our family also we were very poor so and the way that benefits work is you tend to get the sort of a lump sum once a month so my dad would go to the market and buy like loads of fresh fruit and vegetables and there were 10 of us and so because it was a rare thing and they'd come in we'd gorge on fruit and gorge on grapes and then the, because we knew that tomorrow there would be one more for another month so it was very it was very emotional it was like if there's a good thing eat the good thing now because it might disappear and then by the end of the month also like if you have like 10 kids then everyone's just sort of fighting for they know you know it's not going to last very long you Absolutely. have to you can tell you somebody can. comes from a large family because they will eat very quickly because you're so used to if you take more than 30 mm-hmm. seconds to eat your sausage a fork coming from behind you spearing that sausage and going you're not eating that and then eating it so we came up with a system whereby where as soon as our food was served we would lick everything on our plate and then put it back on the plate and go well you won't eat that now um and some of the bolder siblings would still eat it anyway if uh, if people licked it so so there was so there was resource issues and we would often sort of run very short of food. Often by the end of the month, all that would be in the house would be flour and we'd just make chapatis and like cover them in margarine and that would be all there was to eat. So it was very much a kind of, you know, feast or famine kind of thing. So there was an emotional thing about food. Get the resource quickly or you might not have anything later. Um, and so I was, I was, a, I was an yeah. overeater. I was a binge eater. And I also had a, I had a belief that like, because no one really understands how they are creative. So I figured in order for words to come out of me, something would have to go in. And that was usually a litre of ice cream. Like, how could I write, how would a thousand words come out of me unless I put in a litre of ice cream beforehand? That's how the machine works, right? And uh, I finally got hypnotherapy um, to solve that, which I found worked very well. They just took away the emotional connect. I got regressed to my childhood um, and found that when my mum had gone into hospital to have my next sister down, it was the first time my mum had been away and I was crying and crying and crying. And my lovely nan turned up big Welsh nana and she opened her handbag and went have a sweet it'll make you feel better and I was like no I miss my mom and she was like no eat the sweets and it will make you feel better and she made me eat the sweets and then I knew she wanted me to feel better so I was better and I had not any conscious memory of this at all it all came up through hypnotherapy and I was like oh that's interesting I was literally told to eat my emotions that was where that started so the hypnotherapy undid that. I learned what healthy food was, eat the things you need in a day and then anything else you can fit on top of it. And then when I had my daughter, the first yeah. one, the, it was a terrible labour for three days. And at the end of it, I just lay there and just looked at my body and was just patting it going, oh, well done, mate. You did so well. I I love you. You are a good old body, smashing <laughs> old legs. Well done, you. 
Um, and so that, that was by the age of 24. And after that point, I've always had a very, those were the issues that I needed to solve and they were solved. So I thought I was in a pretty good position uh, with my kids. But then on top of that, you know, we've been talking about society's unhealthy uh, problems with food and how you would even talk to your kids about food. But on top of that, it's a uniquely anxious time at the moment. And I see families of whatever political persuasion, the conversation they're having around the dinner table is about how the environment is fucked and politics is fucked and everything's so divisive and there's no hope for the future. And then we remember our kids are in the room and we say to them, thinking it will make it better, but don't worry, guys, because your generation is going to sort this all out. You've got Greta Thunberg, you've got Emma Gonzalez, you know how to use the internet and campaign. You guys are going to sort it out. So don't worry, like it's all going to be fine. And we think that that will allay yeah. their worry and anxiety. We think that's a good thing and a compliment. But of course, the kids are just hearing, save mummy and daddy. We don't know what we're doing. You guys need to save mummy and daddy. And again, these things that we think we do as compliments or as kindnesses or reassurances to our children, you just have yeah. to imagine how you would feel if you overheard everyone in Parliament going, well, you know, or in the Senate or in Congress or whatever, go, well, we fucked it, but like the citizens will sort it out. And you'd be yeah. sitting at home going, what? You're in charge. You're the guys with power. You sort it out. I feel bad now. Yeah, so stressed. That, and I'll never forget that video of Greta Thunberg oh. just like breaking down and saying, I've lost yes. my childhood because you adults just couldn't stop running after totally money. This. So Unbelievable. Just the negligence. Yeah, no, I agree. I so agree. And so also, I love the fact that pregnancy and childbirth is how you developed love for your body because so often we are conditioned for that to be the moment that breaks us. You know, where we lose control of our sides, we lose control of our body, we can't stop eating because we're making a fucking human being inside our body. And so... We, you know, and our bodies change sometimes forever after oh, yes, we have absolutely. given birth and made a baby. And you get like all kinds of things, That's gestational diabetes, your metabolism changes, your hormones are all over the place. So you might never look the same again. And and we are shamed out of that, this idea that you have to snap back immediately after a pregnancy and you have to be thinner than you were before, uh, you know, so that you will be acceptable to society and the way that people worry throughout and the way that our, our industry fat shames women while they're and people. But generally, you know, we saw it with the Kardashians, for example, like the way they were fat shamed throughout all of their pregnancies. It's, oh, we just breed obsession upon obsession, especially around motherhood. So I love the idea of looking at your body as this absolute well, genius that just pulled off well, this complete miracle. Well, it's also a miracle. complete absence of talking about the realities and amazingness of motherhood. Like there are plenty of books that will tell you about, you know, the tearing and, you know, they use awful words like tearing and never the same. Uh, so we know the physical side of it, but the mental and emotional side of parenting needs to be taught and motherhood needs to be talked about in a positive way. Like in the book, I realised that I was like, why aren't there any big films about actually becoming a mother? You grow an extra organ and pint of blood in your body and then your tits turn into a buffet and you sustain a life and you keep that person alive and turn them into an adult and that's why is no one why are there no movies about that why are there no tv shows about how you actually do it and what it's like and how psychedelic and weird it is and then i was like hang on a minute there are like all the biggest hollywood movies are kind of about motherhood because in a superhero movie the man, young man, will be either bitten by a radioactive spider or some mad stone will fall out of the sky and change him. So he comes into contact with a weird substance that suddenly makes him super strong with all these talents. Um, and his job is to save the world, but the world doesn't realise that he's saving them and it's really ungrateful and hounds him and makes it even more difficult and he never gets the credit for it. And he just goes <laughs> off into the sunset and goes, that's okay, I'm Batman, you don't need to thank me. 
That is the story of motherhood. We come into contact with a weird substance, sperm. We then grow all these amazing powers. Instead of web coming out of our wrists, it's milk coming out of our tits. We look after these tiny, useless little human beings who are wholly ungrateful about what we do and never know that what we're doing is keeping them alive. And we never get the credit for it. And we just carry on doing it until we die. Superhero movies are actually the stories about the literally about this, pregnancy. But instead of it being me, it's Tom Holland. But like, once you realise that, you're like, mothers are superheroes. If we made the story about making human beings and raising them to adulthood as exciting and vibrant and brilliant and cool and amazing and widely discussed as every plot point in the Marvel franchise, we would have a very different expectation of what will happen to women after they've had a baby because they're fucking Batman. Of course, they're not going to fit back into a size eight dress. Batman's not in a size eight dress. Why would I be? No, and people who get pregnant should not feel this kind of ridiculous shaming. None of it's about you. None of it's about the truth. It's all just about making you buy shit. Because they're going to panic you about losing weight. I cannot tell you how helpful and interesting and fascinating this has been. And I can't wait to pick your brains on everything else. There are so many things I want to talk to you about. Maybe we'll just need to start our own show. So before you go... Before I let you run off to help advise the rest of the world, uh, would you tell me, please, Catelyn Moran? I what weigh, weigh that I am the proud inventor of the cheese lollipop. It is a lump of cheese the size of your fist, which you put on a fork and you lick while you're watching television in order to make the cheese last as long as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so going to do that. <laughs> Do you weigh anything else? Or is it just the I cheese mean, the lollipop? Kids, obviously, the career, that's all been amazing. But the cheese lollipop, man, every time I tell someone about that, they're like, yes, this is my life changed. So that is my primary and proudest achievement. <laughs> well, I know what we're all going to be doing tonight. We're going to be licking our cheese lollipops. That is not a euphemism. Goodbye and good night. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Erin Finnegan and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson and the beautiful music that you're hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. I really appreciate it and it amps me up to bring on better and better guests. Lastly, at iWay, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iWayPodcast at gmail.com. It's not in pounds and kilos, so please don't send that. It's all about your just, you, you know, you've been on the Instagram anyway. And now we would love to pass the mic to one of our listeners. I weigh my strength, my determination, my perseverance, my ability to heal those around me, and my love and hope for humanity. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I had a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Save big money in your next project with help from Menards. Move water where you need it quickly with a Barracuda sump pump. 
Some pumps keep your basement dry when big storms hit unexpectedly. Get a half-horsepower cast-iron Barracuda sump pump on sale now through May 5th. Hurry into Menards and don't forget to check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save 